Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, one and all, and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and wherever you're listening from, I hope you're safe and well. And today I'm joined by two fabulous authors who'll be going head-to-head in a war of the words a little later on. My first guest has translated more than 20 books from Spanish, Catalan and German, among others. And among them, Benjamin Labatut's International Booker Prize shortlisted book, When We Cease to Understand the World. His essays and criticism have appeared in the NYRB, the TLS and many other journals that don't just use initials in print and online. Here to tell us about his new novel, My Father's Diet, it's Adrian Nathan West. Hello to you. Hi. And my second guest is the author of nine novels, which include The Good Doctor and In a Strange Room, both of which were shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And last year, he won the Booker Prize for his novel The Promise, which we'll be talking about today. Damon Galgut, hello. Welcome to Book Off. Hi. Glad to be here. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. And we are truly international today because we are joining London, where I am in the UK, to Cape Town, I believe, to the east coast of America. How, how is it in Cape Town at the moment, Damon? Um, it's a late summer's day, really beautiful, not not too hot and no wind blowing. So that's unusual for Cape Town. The wind's a constant factor. <laughs> it's a beautiful day. <laughs> Can't complain about the weather, at least. Good. Yeah. <laughs> and what about you, Nate? Where, whereabouts do we find you? So I'm actually in Swanee, Tennessee. I'm about an hour outside of Chattanooga. It's a small university town. If you even want to call it a town, it's a small university conglomeration of buildings with some people around. And it's a kind of gray, cold day. Okay. A gray, cold day in Tennessee. Yeah. Um, Well, it's lovely to have you both here and be connected by the power of technology. And over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to discuss your brilliant books. We're going to talk about your writing, get some recommendations of things to read. And of course, we'll do the book off where each of you Pictures as a book that you love and think that we should all read, but that's for later on. Uh, first of all, Damon, um, I know this is a bit old now, so I'm just going to get it out of the way. Congratulations on the Booker Prize there. That's done. You've heard it a million times. Um, for those that might not have got to The Promise yet because they're waiting for the paperback or they're thinking, oh, I've got that Booker Prize winning novel on my list. I will get to it soon. Um, could you perhaps set the story up for us yeah um 
I, I hope I can do it without making the pretext sound too depressing because it involves a lot, a lot of dying and death. Um, yeah. I, I got the basic idea for the book in a conversation with a friend who was telling me about attending, you know, the funerals of four of his family members, his parents and his brother and his sister, um, over a long period of time. And, and he's older than me, so none of this, you know, was unduly tragic. But um, mm. somewhere along the way, it gave me the idea that that might be a, um, you know, a non-conventional approach to telling the story of a family. Um, I'm, I'm drawn more to unusual n uh, narrative approaches than to the narratives themselves these days. I think when you're younger, plot is the sexiest thing around. As you get older, you know, the ar architecture of plot becomes much more interesting. Um, and I liked, I liked the notion of what you could do, you know, with um, telling a family story that basically just gives you four quite tight frames on that family, um, you know, with big gaps of time in between. Um, and then, you know, it occurred to me in a secondary sort of way that I could widen the frame a little bit and show something of South Africa in the background. So essentially through these four funerals over 40 years, um, you're getting a picture of a family in decline and uh, in a secondary sort of way of a nation, uh, probably also in decline, although that wasn't you know, my intended objective. But um, in broad terms, mm. that's that's what I'm covering. Um, and I... I heard an interview with you a little while back um around at the booker prize where i think you said <laughs> brilliantly um i've got a bit older now and so i just don't really care as much about what people think <laughs> and i loved that sort of attitude that you had in terms of what you were writing what you wanted to do it matters more than you might think i mean i know it makes a, a good soundbite but in, but in fact it's it's quite liberating if if you happen to be a writer who's spent a lot of years inhibited in some way, which is to say all writers, um, by the idea of what people think of them or think of how they express themselves and so on. There's there's always a kind of tiny, tight little self-censoring voice in the head somewhere, I think. But um, mm. somehow I got rid of that by getting older and ceasing to care that much. And it's, it's frankly, it, it, the repercussions in a literary sense are uh, quite fruitful. Yeah, it's great to hear. Um, and you, you sort of just touched on this, but the the book takes place over four decades. Was that something you always knew you wanted to do with this book? And, and was that a span of time you always thought that you would write? No, I, it's, it's hard to be exact about when the various components of the book sort of fell into place, but they, but they really don't tend to know snap into position all at once it tends to be quite a with me anyway quite a slow process of figuring stuff out um but the moment i'd realized that actually i could say something about south africa too in this narrative arc that um then it became a question well at what points in time are you situating these funerals because whatever you're focusing on in the background should be evocative of something and then of course you know the the notion that each funeral is in a, in a totally different decade with a different president in power in South Africa soon sort of showed itself to my imagination and I saw the possibility mm. of that. But no, things, things sort of percolate and trickle down into place. It's not a, a high-tech 
putting each idea in its category business with me. I mean, I'm sure it is with some people, but I, I lack what <laughs> <Yeah>. chemical is required. <laughs> And just just on cue, talking about funerals, the church that's just across the way from me has started doing some bell ringing practice, I think, which you might be able to hear in the background, just floating in there to give us a bit of a, a nice soundtrack. Nate, if we could talk about um, My Father's Diet, this novel is many things, I think. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a fictionalised sort of memoir, it's a, it's a portrait of a life crisis it's a darkly humorous story can you set up this book for us and the listeners so the book is a story narrated by a young man of his father's return to the town where he was born the town is meant to be very anonymous the characters are meant to be somewhat anonymous there are very few people who are actually named in the book it should be a place it could be located really anywhere in america and the father is estranged uh, by his own designs because he left to pursue an advanced degree in order to make something of himself, as he says. He misses what are really the most important years of the son's life, I think, from, say, 2 to 20. He returns and he says, well, now I want us to really get to know each other. And there's a bit of a self-helpy, American self-help style inflection there when he says, perhaps we don't have a relationship, but we can try to make a new relationship or something like this. Well... The father returns with a new wife who is a bit like an adventitious plant. She can't grow in the new soil. She starts to lose her mind. She really does lose her mind. And at the point where she's leaving the father and the father is in a state of absolute despair, he begins a short series of confessions to his son in which the son thinks, well, he's about to tell me that he's going to commit suicide or something drastic like this. But instead he says, I'm going to do a 12-week physique transformation challenge. And then the remainder of the book is the story of the father's struggle to uh, acquire a bodybuilder's physique and perhaps, hopefully, the existential, if you will, issues that feed into his desire to make this rather quixotic choice. <laughs> uh, and it's it's got lots of humour, dark, sort of subtle humour throughout, which I really enjoyed. And with with both of these books, Damon sort of touched on it, I suppose, just earlier about sort of being able to tell a bit of the story of, of South Africa as well. In the same sort of way with your book, Nate, it felt a little bit to me like there was a bit of a critique on America, on the sort of American way of living that, that comes through what the characters are like and what they're doing. It's strange. I, it, a part of me is very critical of all of that, but then a part of me also understands it quite well. I thought of this during the pandemic because I had been in Europe and we were very locked down and nobody could do anything. And at one point I went to visit my family in the American South. Well, everything was open and it was very sunny and you could go do whatever you want. And there is, of course, everybody's buying things all the time. And it made me think of this wonderful book by Georges Perec, The Things, where there's this optimism invested in purchasing things and in creating a life out of things. Of course, it's nonsense, and a lot of people are completely miserable, but you can see this messianism in constant purchasing. And um, I wanted to show that, but I also wanted to show the aftermath of that, where what you get when you have a society of people buying things all the time is a society full of garbage, and garbage buildings and entire parts of towns that have been abandoned. So I, I, I don't want to say it's a critique in a, in a radical sense, because I'm not a particularly sure. radical person. But it, it, it is simply looking around and seeing the enormous waste produced by this lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Much better way of putting it than me. And how much of you is actually in this book, Nate? Because I, I sort of said it's a fictionalised memoir. I don't know if that's true. But I feel like there's there's definitely something 
personal coming through here. Of course. I think the, tr- the truth is this. the You stand on the shore of your life and the ocean throws up all this flotsam and you pick it up and you try to make something out of it. So <laughs> I, I wouldn't describe it as a memoir per se. Uh, for example, my narrator is restrained. My narrator is very timid. Uh, I wasn't especially like that. Of course, I've been timid in situations. Even when my narrator goes to the gym with his father, he has no idea what to do and everything seems quite strange to him. Actually, I'm a big gym nut. But of, of course, a lot of, a lot of it is true. Of course, there are a lot of things that are true. Um, and particularly, you know, there's a figure in the book later when the narrator goes to visit a former girlfriend of his. Uh, and that was something, a, a, a little tribute to a person that I knew. So Bits. Yeah, bits, exactly. Uh, Damon, just to to come back to to you and and to the promise, if I may, your narrator sort of swoops in and out of characters' consciousnesses, and sometimes the you is the reader, sometimes it's a character talking to another, sometimes just talking to themselves. How did this technique come about? Because I found it such a joy to read this, but it's so so different and, and really original. I just wondered if there was a spark for this writing it this way. Yeah, well, the spark was a, a sort of diversion from the writing of the novel, actually. I, I was about three months in, I think, um, and I got offered a passing job writing a, a couple of drafts of a film script, which I went off to do. don't think there's very much of my film script left in the movie, but um, it did have a salutary effect on my imagination in the sense that when I came back to my book, I suddenly saw that you could apply a sort of cinematic logic to prose and it it was very freeing for me because I guess I'd been fretting with the confines of a a third person voice I mean even an omniscient narrator has to operate within certain bounds usually but Mm. I you know the the thing about cinema is it cuts all the time from one point of view to another and I you know what the one thing cinema can't do is is do that internally It, it, it can do it in the way that it a camera can observe, which is to say from the outside. But books, of course, do work internally. You know, the greater part of a book's landscape that takes place inside its characters, I think. So by extending that language, you, you could actually cut from the inner life of one character to the inner life of another, right inside some totally different situation. And um, the freedom with that very fast and sort of right-angled movement, if you like, where you're, you're kind of snapping off a point of view in favor of another one was exciting to me it didn't it didn't feel to me like something i'd read before um even though one has encountered variations on that approach maybe which which is quite energizing in in one sense but on the other hand is also quite conducive to insecurity so you know a lot of this book a lot of the writing the book was you know occupied with me worrying whether the writing was actually working you know, to some degree, that's always a concern, no matter what one is working on. But it, it took on a, a very acute character in, in this case. But um, essentially, that was the that was the spark for it. And um, it's it's one of those things where you you hit on a particular approach, which ultimately you stick with because, in some way, it aligns with your own sensibility. In other words, it fits very well with the way my own brain perceives the world. So that's always mm-hmm. a good platform i think for creating but you know not strong enough to quite erase the doubts not not until you're done i guess <laughs> yes right <laughs> and i loved the um uh, the fellini quote right at the front of the book 
Yeah, the, that quote kind of preceded the book by some time. It, you know, I keep a journal of little, you know, odd notes and scratchings to myself and so on. And I picked that up in an interview with him along the way. And I, I'd always found it a kind of fabulous quote. But it, again, it suggested itself as, um, you know, the first step of the, you know, the staircase I was building. If you want to see a book as a staircase, yes. it, it, it seemed like the natural first step. <laughs> Before I ask you both about books that you've been reading and enjoying recently, I just want to ask about translation, Nate, if I may, because when I was hosting the Booker Prize podcast when it uh, it was in existence and indeed the International Prize, I would really love speaking to translators and authors and and getting a, a taste of that dynamic of working together, of the fact that you have to take on an, an author's work and and essentially write it yourself again, but trying to be true to it. Um, ha- you've worked with lots of different people. Are you doing a lot more translating at the moment? Is it uh, is it something that you keep up? Keep up? I'm trying to do less translation at the moment. Uh, 2021 was a very difficult year for me because I had taken on a lot of work. And so I have, I don't even know how many translations that are about to come out, you know, seven or eight or something <laughs> like that. And so really I'm trying to focus on writing now. Um, I would like the or given the opportunity i would like to plug one translation which is a wonderful book by the swiss author herman berger uh it's called brenner and it's a sort of proust with cigars but much crazier than proust and um i'd like to plug it because it's the most difficult thing i've ever done and i think it's the most rewarding thing i've ever done so uh berger i I do want to continue with i'd like that to be a marriage as opposed to a fling yeah so have you have you mainly just had flings so far to an extent. So there's an Austrian writer, Josef Winkler, whom I've translated a couple of books by. I've done two books by Alejo Carpentier, which are about to come out. But in general, it's more flings than marriages. That's true. Because so I know um, there's a wonderful translator and author in her own right, um, Jennifer Croft, who I have got to know through various Booker Prizes, International mm. Booker Prizes. And she works very closely with um, Olga Tukarczuk. I believe. Yes. I think that they are. So th- that's a marriage. Definitely. That's a marriage. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I've apparently the the cliche of traduttore traditore. I've taken it too far. I'm, I'm going out with too many authors. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, great. Well, I just I just wanted to talk about that other side of your sort of career and and, and writing because I think it's a really interesting um, side to it and. You know, at times it's hey. mutually fruitful and at times it's mutually detrimental. It depends yeah. on the day. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so it'd be great to uh, just ask you what you've been reading and enjoying recently. We love to share books on this podcast and give recommendations where we can. Um, have you been reading much recently, Dame? Is there anything that you'd like to uh, shout about? Yeah, although it's a kind of an odd shout, I guess. I, I tend to do a lot of retrospective reading, older books that you sort of happen on uh, rather than stuff that's been pushed at you uh, on a daily basis. Um, Anyway, I I picked up some time ago um, a reissuing, I guess, of the writings by someone called William Roughhead, who was a Scottish true crime reporter, I guess. You know, way before Netflix and all the streaming services did it, trials were covered by people who had to write them up and make them as compelling, I guess, as Netflix tries to do. And he does an exceptionally good job. So anyway, the New York Review of Books has reissued them as a, as a classic, and I can see why, because they're um, incredibly well-written. 
with a very dry irony to them and, and they're dealing with some absolutely appalling behavior. Um, I, I'm a sucker, I'm afraid, for, you know, really shabby uh, true crime sagas. I, I love the mixture <laughs> of twisted psychology and dark situations. Um, and then usually there's a, there's a kind of a, a drama in the sense that people get caught and there's a trial. And the trial tends to provide a sort of high register of language and there's usually a low register somewhere else. So I, I think true crime writing um, offers a lot of possibilities for serious writers. It's just not generally taken that seriously. But William Ruffhead clearly took his work very seriously and I'm, I really have had an enormous amount of fun reading them. There are also crimes that took place a very, very long time ago, as in, you know, pe people uh, before my time. So yeah. they take on a certain unreal quality as opposed to the one. It, one is maybe too conscious of the damage done in crimes that are current, whereas old, old crime feels like it's fiction. Yes. And so you get a, a little slice of history as well along with it, I suppose. That's the other thing. Well, you do, yes, yes. Um, you 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 get a whole lot of uh, cultural stuff that you have to figure out. So, I I've, I've really enjoyed it. Now, that's probably not a very literary punt on my part, but I feel no shame. <laughs> no, that's great. That's good. Thank you. And what about you, Nate? Have you been reading recently, and have you got some recommendations for us? Not just the ones you've translated. Of course. Um, <laughs> I've been doing a bit of research lately into an eccentric Swiss author named Fritz Zorn. So Fritz Zorn uh, has an improbable name, which sounds like uh, Fritz Rage. And his real name, because that's a pen name, was even more improbable, which is Fritz Angst or Fritz Fear. And uh, he felt that he would affect a change in his identity from fear to rage by writing this incredibly bizarre book, which is called uh, Mars. And it's effectively his indictment of his parents, his upbringing, and his Swiss society, which he felt had uh, given him a psychosomatic cancer, which he died of. The book begins... I'm young, rich, and educated, and I'm unhappy, neurotic, and alone, which I think is a wonderful beginning. <laughs> and uh, he knows he's dying as he writes the book, although he does have hope that if he can excise these cultural problems and these problems of his upbringing, he can finally become a whole person again. It appears not to have worked. But the book is an exercise in absolutely brutal truth-telling. And also, though it's strange to say, it's very funny because he's so outrageous in his critiques of absolutely everything. So I've been reading a lot about him. He wrote a strange letter to this girl that he knew in high school, which she then published as a book with her own response to it. And um, I actually got in touch with her. And so I'm hoping to meet her sister in Madrid and talk to her a bit about oh, this wow. wonderful character. Yeah, Fantastic. Oh, so that would yeah. be great, wouldn't it? That's going to yeah. be fascinating if you manage to do that. Brilliant. Great. Thank you for that recommendation. That phrase, psychosomatic cancer, I mean, is that a thing? Uh, I believe that it's not a thing. But he was quite uncertain that it was. But I mean, did he effectively give himself cancer by believing he had it? Is that no? He was diagnosed with cancer, and he oh. came to the conclusion that its origins were psychosomatic. All oh, right, okay. And probably genetic, he says, because Swiss society he considers to be a, a completely degenerate. Right. So <laughs> never came to South Africa clearly. No, in fact, he brings up Africa at times, but of course his, his notions of Africa, because he's a very rich sort of Swiss pretty boy, his notions of Africa are sort of noble, savage ideas. So at the point, at one point he's talking about how he confronts his death versus how an African, in quotation marks, confronts their death, and it's obviously the sort of nonsense you would expect. Right. Quite fascinating. Okay, you got my attention yeah. on that. <laughs> Damon's writing this down now. <laughs> he's like, yeah, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful book, and as I say, 
although it's perverse to say, the book is hilarious. So you really laugh all through the thing because his um, you admire him for the courage of his convictions, but also his convictions are preposterous. So you're constantly chuckling at them. Right. Just remind us of the title, mate. Yes, Mars by Fritz Zorn. Great. Thank you both for those recommendations. Really interesting, actually. And before we do the book off, um, I'm keen to know what's what's next for you both. Damon, did you already have a a new book on the go or a project in mind um, when when the Booker Prize came along? Because I know from speaking to previous winners that that if you if you don't have something and that happens, you're sort of thrown off kilter a bit. <laughs> Yeah, I've been thrown off kilter anyway. I, d- I did have a, a, <laughs> a, a collection of short stories in the works and I was quite peacefully meandering through the, th- the thickets of the short stories and the, bo- the book of Fell. Yeah, it's, it's all on hold at the moment, but I will return to them. I'm, I'm sort of midway through Great. the book of stories, which have a vaguely common theme in, in that they're all about people who are far away from home, sort of going going on the theory that people who are not at home behave differently to the way, you know, those same people might do when they're at home. Mm. So, yeah, it, it may take a while yet, but but there is something keeping me off. Fantastic. Oh, we look forward to that whenever it uh, whenever it may surface. And uh, Nate, obviously, you said you're, you're, you're concentrating on your own writing. This is your second book that you published, My Father's Diet. So, what's what's next is it going to be more fiction it will be more fiction in principle if my life works out as i would like for it to work out in the next year or two i'll be writing a novel about alzheimer's and about the way that we have come to treat older people and particularly weak and infirm older people uh, in america but in western societies in general i mean i live in spain and i see the same thing in spain Mm -hmm. as well Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Well, thank you both for those recommendations. Thanks for giving us a tease about what is coming up uh, for you both. But now it's time for the book off. This is where each of you gets three minutes to tell us about a book that you really like and that you think we should all read. Now, you don't have to use the three minutes if you don't want to, but if you're still talking at the three-minute mark, I'm either going to honk you out with the horn or ring you out with the school bell. Uh, so a little bit of admin before we get into it. Um, Nate, would you like to go first or would you like to go second? I think I will cede the floor to the Booker Prize winner in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's thrilled about that. Sure. Um, and David, so at your three-minute mark, if you are still talking, would you prefer the school bell or the bicycle horn as your, uh, as your <laughs> note to stop? Uh, school bell has more of an authoritarian ring in my mental association box, but I doubt I'm going to still be speaking after three minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, no problem. The bell it is. Well, just before I start the clock then, why don't you tell us the book that you're putting forward? The book I'm putting forward is My Dog Tulip by J.R. Ackerley. Fantastic. All right, three minutes on the clock if you wish to use them. And it's over to you, Damon, uninterrupted, to tell us about your book. Well... I first came across J.R. Ackley when I was researching my book on E.M. Forster, and Ackley was part of Forster's circle in later years, and he preceded Forster on a visit to India, um, where he worked as the private secretary to a Maharaja, a job that he then recommended Forster for and that Forster took up later. But Ackley's account of that period in India, he wrote up as a book called Hindu Holiday, which is a fabulous book. Um, and it led me to some of his other writings. Wonderful though it is, Hindu Holiday isn't the one that caught my attention today. He has, a, he has another memoir called um, My Father and Myself, one of the most honest accounts of a father-son relationship you're ever likely to read. And I think Ackley's great strength was in memoir, and particularly because he was a highly eccentric writer. Nowhere did this eccentricity reach its peak more fully than in this account of what really is a love affair with a dog. His uh, Alsatian tulip was his constant companion. Ackley was much better with dogs than he was with people. And um, this book is a full, frank, unabridged account of what truly is a kind of passion, perhaps perverse. Well, only perverse in the sense that you feel the book is full of longings that could go to dark and dangerous places. One hopes they were never acted upon, but certainly Tulip stood in for a lot of human relationships in J.R. Ackerley's life. He's very open and honest about it, and the result, I think, is funny, moving, touching, and deeply memorable. For all animal lovers, and even for those who don't care for animals, it's a book I would really, really strongly to read, to read uh, strongly urge you to read if you have ever felt a passion or a tenderness for any other living creature at all you'll find its echo here thank you fantastic you can have a bit of the bell anyway even though you you had 40 seconds to spare david as you as you so rightly predicted you you, you didn't go all the way through oh that book sounds absolutely bonkers um and we'll come back and talk about it a bit more, if that's okay, in just a moment. But you can have a breather now. I'm putting three minutes back on the clock because it's Nate's turn. But just before we start it, Nate, what book are you putting forward in the book of? I'm putting forward uh, Caput by Curzio Malaparte. Fantastic. All right, three minutes back on the clock then. Uninterrupted, over to you to tell us about Caput. 
So I wanted to choose something maybe not entirely fashionable, something that's a little bit out of the current. And uh, Curzio Malaparte was really a, an obvious choice for that. Malaparte was a wonderful liar, but uh, I'm sorry, a wonderful writer. But what I wanted to say is above that, perhaps a, a really magnificent liar. And um, in his case, I think that's something that kind of has to be celebrated rather than despised. Uh, the beginning of Caput coincides with the beginning of the Nazi campaign in the East, much of which Malaparte witnessed as a diplomat and as a journalist. And I think that what he saw really was enough of the conflict to figure out how it could be told better than the way it really happened, in a sense. And so, um, you know, Malaparte attributes a great deal of moral rectitude to himself, but if he really had possessed that rectitude, he never would have seen all of the things that he saw. He was vain, he was cynical, and he saved the good stuff for these fictions that are real enough to be believed and at their best, I think, express truths that sometimes transcend the bare facts. So to give you an example, in life, he was a fair linguist. He spoke excellent French and he spoke English pretty well. But in the book, of course, he speaks fluent Romanian, fluent Russian, fluent German, and the peasants, prostitutes, and murderers tell him their deepest thoughts and their deepest misgivings. He interviews Anton Palavich, who's the future dictator of Croatia and the head of the Ustashi. And he imagines he sees a basket of oysters or mussels on his desk, but Pavlik tells him, no, that's 40 pounds of human eyes that I've been given by my soldiers. Um, surely this didn't happen, but it tells you a great deal about Pavlik and about the immense cruelty of the Ustashe. At one point, you know, he uh, is talking about the Germans, whom he's very brilliant on. And he wasn't politically above suspicion himself, you know. He was a fascist at one point. He was imprisoned by Mussolini, and he claimed that it was because of his anti-fascist convictions, but the truth was it was because he had defamed a person that Mussolini liked better than him. However, he, he was horrified by what the Nazis were doing, and he saw very clearly that it wasn't war, that it was organized murder and rapine. And he writes... The Germans fear the defenseless, the weak, and the sick. They're jealous of the mysterious nobility of the oppressed. And once they've revealed their corruption, they're assigned or they're consigned rather to eliminate anyone who's borne witness to it. I'm sure this was true, and it's a trait I see sometimes in America too, this cult of sort of abject self-sufficiency, if that term makes sense, that combines this commodified bravura with the sort of pants-pissing horror of anyone who hasn't made it or can't make it or is disallowed from making the gestures to show that they're exactly like you. Um, Malaparte captures all these things wonderfully, you know. He, I think a lot about a quote from him in one of his movies where he says, you know, not even freedom has been capable of making us free people. And I think this is a wonderful quote and it says a great deal to me about the situation that we're in in these rich countries in the West. Fantastic. With two seconds to spare, Nate, it's like like you put a timer on yourself. Uh, and a lovely quote to end on. Fabulous. Thank you very much for that. Um, oh, I don't know where to don't know where to start with these two. Um, Damon, you absolutely have sold me on this book. Instantly, it makes me want to read it. I don't have a dog. I don't actually have a, a pet, but you know, it feels like it could be quite amusing. <laughs> And unlike anything else. Well, yeah, there is that. I mean, that's the thing about eccentricity, right? It's eccentric because it, it's not quite like what everybody yeah. else is doing. <laughs> yeah. But it does have a very dark edge. It ha well, not very, but it skirts a dark edge, it has to be said. It feels to me that it might it might be a... It feels like because it, because it's mainly... A, and maybe it's not just mainly about his sort of relationship with this dog, but that it would be quite a short sort of story but maybe there's more to it than that it's it's 200 pages if that that counts as substantial but um 
you know, any any great love can pour forth in quantity, you know. Um, and this this is a novel of passion, like Lolita. It's not it's it's not a novel. It's a memoir. And um, yeah. Anyway, whether or not you have a dog, you should give it a try sometime. It's, it really is worth it. Off the wall. Oh, I absolutely, I absolutely will. I mean, it sounds bonkers and brilliant. Um, so thank you for bringing it to our attention because it really does make me want to read it. Um, and Nate, another fabulous pitch. So Curzio Malaparte was also was a war correspondent, if I'm right, and yes. and, a, and he made films, didn't he, as well as write? He made films as well because he was very vain and very ambitious, and I think he wanted to try his hand at anything. And I think also when somebody else did something and did well at it, he thought. Oh well, this person is second rate. I can certainly do this better. So um, yes, he did. He did do some films as well, medium quality, I think. Medium quality, okay. Um, but yeah, there's. I sort of love how you open the pitch with saying, "I'm going to do, so, you know, talk about something that's a, that's not very fashionable," and that he's a sort of brilliant writer but a magnificent liar. The fact that you're sort of celebrating that and that you know within this book you're talking about things that probably definitely didn't happen, and yet it tells us a great deal through those sort of embellishments, I just think is wonderful. Um, and this book, again, you know, much like Damon's choice, sounds like nothing I've, I don't know, like nothing I've ever read before, possibly. It's really quite mad. So he comes up with these strange metaphors for events that are happening in the war, but he pretends that they're real. And I think that he, if you were conversing with him, he would try to convince you that these things had really happened. Right. <laughs> um, so he tells a wonderful story, for example, about a German uh, general, I believe, who's trying to catch a salmon in a river. And the, the salmon, of course, is overcoming the German at every turn. And so finally he has to plant these battalions of soldiers on both sides of the river to trap the salmon so he can try to hunt it down. And it's a wonderful metaphor for the uh, very undignified nature in which the Germans waged that war. Yeah, yeah. And at the, and, and, but at the same time, of the, I don't really like the phrase, the triumph of the spirit, but in a sense it's true. In a sense, Malaparte is watching these people and saying, somebody with such a preposterous pursuit, they're never going to win. They're never going to win in the end. I just, I just love the sound of it, and I don't think I've seen a Malaparte film. I've definitely not read a Malaparte book, so I'm now intrigued by him. I'm intrigued by this book. I mean, I'm, I want to add both of them to the uh, to be read pile straight away. So I'll be ordering them after this. Oh, that's a tough decision, but <laughs> I, just, I think, I think I'm going to take Kaput. As the winner, just by a hair, because of your <laughs> because of your fabulous pitch. Even I want to. Read it now. <laughs> even you want to read it, David, which is great. Um, I wanted to actually, if I can ask Damon a quick question. Um, of course. Have you ever read a book by? Uh, there's a French philosopher named Jean Crenier who wrote this book called "On the Death of a Dog." No, although that title rings rings a bell. Um, no. It's very short. It can't be more than fifty or sixty pages, but. I really recommend it very highly. So I'm a great dog lover myself. And um, it's incredibly profound and beautiful and sad. And um, if you like dog literature, I recommend it very highly. Well, it's, it's not a genre I'm committed to. It just so happens. Three books I'm going to have to read after this conversation. I know. That's the problem with this, you see. Um, the list grows, grows ever longer. Um, but my, my dog Tulip does sound absolutely 
brilliant, Damon. So thank you for that pitch because I I definitely want to read it. I want to see what this is all about um, and learn a bit more about him as well. Thank you both for those brilliant pitches. Thank you both for for being here. Uh, and the promise by Damon Galgood is out now. It's published by Vintage. And my father's diet by Adrian Nathan West is also out now. And it's published by And Other Stories. And both of them are really great reads. Uh, I can highly recommend them both to add to all the other books that you've written down from listening to this podcast. Damon, Nate, what an absolute pleasure to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.